We live in a constantly changing world where the speed of information is changing how we think and act and connect with one another. When people in a society lose faith in their institutions, in God and in each other, the nation collapses. We need help rebuilding trust and tying it all together. Welcome to All That To Say, a podcast exploring the interrelatedness of all things in long-form conversation. President and CEO of the Louis Palau Association, Kevin Palau, joins the podcast for bold conversation about seeking good for our cities and living up to the beauty God intended for us all. Welcome to All That to Say. I am so pumped to have with me today Kevin Palau from Portland, actually a suburb in Portland, but it's still the Portland Metro. Kevin, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Jim. Excited to talk to you. I am so excited to talk to you because you, I mean, you are a thing. And you might say, oh, no, no, not me. But the truth is, you have developed a very influential voice uh, on the national stage, on the world stage, on the faith-based stage. And uh, I am so excited to kind of unpack uh, for our All That to Say crowd a bit of your story and what's up going on with uh, the organization you lead, which is named for your father, uh, your dad, Louise Powell, the uh, evangelistic association that bears his name. And you are one of his children. How many kids did he have? There are four Palau sons, including me. So I've got three brothers. Three brothers. And which number are you in that birth order? Well, I, I have an identical twin brother, but I'm technically the oldest. Oh, oh okay. So you, you are Esau uh, in the in the mix-up, so to speak. And uh, yeah, four it. boys. You know, I have four sons. So let me ask you, are you all getting along or are, are you not talking to some of them? You know, How's honestly, it's been, it has been such a blessing. We all live, this is, might sound slightly odd, but like we all live within five miles of each other which is also within five miles of the home church. We've all been part of our entire lives and the elementary school. We all went to as kids, which is, which my younger brother, Steve teaches at public school, William Walker. And uh, three of the the other three of us work full-time at the Palau association. So yeah, everybody, thankfully everybody gets along well, because if you live that close and, didn't get along, it would be... Uh, yeah, yeah, but I mean, not, not obviously that can't be taken for granted these days when sometimes our sibling rivalries yeah. and breakdowns, that's a great story. And now you just told me you had a twin, a twin brother. Is that an identical twin yeah. or a fraternal twin? Yes, identical. Identical. Okay, so yeah, I he just was got... here, we got the same <laughs> hairline and everything. I, I mean, I just have to go there. Uh, so... What would you say about growing up as an identical twin? Was that a good thing? Or were there days you thought, oh, man, I wish I could just be myself and not be mixed up with him? Uh, no, you know, we, I think both of us would say it. Well, for one thing, it's like you when it's all you know, you just we weren't super introspective <laughs> yeah, about it. It's just yeah. like, well, this is kind of the way things are. But we honestly complimented each other well and uh, went to Wheaton College together. We didn't room together there. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, we understand each other really well. We are different enough that, that people didn't really confuse us that much, people that knew us. We were super boring, never did one <laughs> prank or anything. The you never that people would tried like, to leverage if that. If I were you, I would have just had nothing. <laughs> you know, I, Too I, studious I, kids. And 
I, I was a pastor uh, before I had my present job, and uh, I had a guy on my staff who was an identical twin, and he was a great pastor, an associate uh, on my staff, and oh, he was the guy who was you know all into pastoral care, and if somebody had a problem, they wanted to share it with him. He had a twin brother who was not a man of faith for many years and then came to be and started coming to church. Mm-hmm. And we had some hilarious stories of people in the church going up to his brother because they would just naturally kind of dress alike. And I mean, they just, they looked exactly alike, same gestures and all that. And somebody in the church would come up to his twin brother who was a new believer and say, well, I just want you to know that my husband came around and he's looking to, because they thought they were talking to the pastor and he, he was trying to navigate how to, how to not embarrass the person speaking to him while at the same time saying, whoa, time out. I don't know your whole story. Just a lot of uh, unique adventures when you're an identical twin, I think. Well, we, we, we're both have just instinctively will answer to the other's name and like, we'll just instinctively, like you say, just, just want to like decide almost, again, instinctually, is this worth even clarifying to the person? And if I do, how do I do it? That's right. Yeah, graciously. And how do I do it without them somebody, but... making them feel awkward? Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. hey, Kevin, uh, thanks for allowing me to just dive into that little bit of personal journey, which isn't exactly what you signed up for here today, but thanks for giving us that <laughs> insight. And as you're just talking, I mean, it's so clear, Kevin, you have uh, a lot of kind of, what should I say, uh, just a lot of peace about where you are and what you're doing, it seems to me. You're just giving mm-hmm. off a very uh, welcoming and relaxed kind of a vibe. And I think that has to do with the kind of uh, faith that you have embraced growing up in your house and uh, with your family. And yes. you now you lead an evangelistic association. That's the official name, uh, though you could yeah. shorthand it to the Palau Association. And it was birthed in the journey of your dad, who became what many people considered to be uh, the other Billy Graham. That that sounds like there's a, yeah. uh, a competition. There wasn't. But he was a, a phenomenal evangelist. And uh, I know he's passed away not so long ago. And for that, we uh, send our condolences, because no matter what age mm. uh, you lose a parent, it's never the right time. But your dad was a towering figure, and and that kind of set the stage for what you're doing now. And help me uh, help my audience understand a little bit about that journey. Your dad was born in Argentina, right? Yes. Yeah, dad was born in Argentina, and yet we've lived in the Portland, Oregon area 50 years, so almost my entire life. And um, that was for the simple reason that when my dad was kind of discovered as this like young, fiery evangelist, you know, in his early 20s in Argentina by a pastor from the San Francisco Bay Area named Ray Stedman, Peninsula oh, Bible Church. Man, this guy Ray, Ray Stedman, I know that guy. Board of, oh my, yeah, so some, I figured someone like you'd be like, oh, hey, <laughs> yeah, I'm old enough I to that. remember Ray Stedman. Yeah. And but so, Ray so is Ray, the one who discovered your dad, believe. so to speak. Sorry. He's the one who said, oh, here's yeah. somebody with promise. Exactly. He, Ray just, I mean, when you say discover, I mean, it wasn't like it was, yeah, yeah. Kind of whatever. you know, Ray just came across this young evangelist who, who had, you know, Ray felt unique gifts and Ray persuaded dad to move from Argentina up to the U S and, and um, to attend Multnomah school of the Bible, as it was then called. 
And uh, that's where dad met my mom, who's a native Oregonian, and we've lived here in the Portland area ever since. But dad, yeah, dad learned from the Billy Graham organization. Dad knew that he was called to proclaim the good news from a pretty early age. And he also discovered the work of Billy Graham, the ministry of Billy Graham, pretty early on and had this feeling like, and it could sound a little arrogant. I, I, if you knew my dad, you would know that that wasn't really the case. But dad just felt like I'm going to be the first Latin American to do this kind of evangelistic work in Latin America. In other words, why aren't there Latin Americans that are uniting as much of the body of Christ as possible across all these denominations to, to show the love of Jesus to a community and to proclaim the good news to as many people as possible. So dad did not lack for big vision and ambition. And even before he'd ever visited the U.S., for example, he felt like I'm someday I'm going to be preaching to New York City to tens and tens of thousands of people. He just he had a clear sense of what God had called him to do and a real commitment to do whatever it took to get there. And he, as an Argentinian, would speak Spanish as his first language. And so as you're describing his, his imagination, he sees Billy Graham, an English speaker, uh, certainly in the United States and Canada, the English-speaking world, although, of course, he traveled broadly into other places where English was not the first language. But these mass meetings where uh, Jesus was proclaimed and people responded, and your dad saw that and thought, man, uh, I'm from Buenos Aires. There's a big city. Why isn't there a stadium there filled with people? Uh, that's what I'm hearing you say. And yeah. and ultimately, he lands in Portland because he's uh, encouraged to go to school there at the Multnomah School of the Bible. And here you are. But your dad's dreams... And here we are. And... Well, his dreams and visions came to pass. Yeah. Well, in the way that it happened, I mean, you know, dad, dad had the big advantage of, uh, even though his dad did not speak English at all, his dad, who was a businessman, and then his dad died when my dad was 10 years old, his father died you know, at 34 and um, they lost everything. And there was, it was a real challenge for their family, but his dad just had this sense that English would be a great way forward for dad. So send him to British boarding schools. Mm -hmm. So that's why where dad grew up. If people heard him on the radio or whatever, you know, there was a bit of an accent there, but dad's English was really, really fluent. And, and uh, he thanks his dad for having the foresight, mm -hmm. but yeah. So dad came up to Multnomah to prepare for ministry, meets my mom, um, immediately after they're married, uh, goes and interns for six months at a Billy Graham crusade in Fresno, California, where he learns the ropes. And then we live in eight years, uh, for eight years in Latin America, as dad is beginning to do this stadium or bull ring kinds of uh, crusades, they used to be called, that the name yes, kind of yes. jars, jarring to me though for decades, that's what we called them. But Portland, to cut a long story short, Portland, where, you know, for a long time, people would say, why are, you, why are you based in such an unchurched place? I mean, why aren't you in Colorado Springs or Wheaton or Dallas or something? It's like, oh, well, mom's from here. And it just kind of made sense as dad was traveling the world to have us kind of near mom's home base. But now we feel like it was such a God thing that we've been planted in Portland all these years because it is such a quirky, progressive, unchurched place. It forced us to rethink not the content of the gospel, not the beautiful, eternal, 
fully uh, applicable to anyone, anywhere, anytime message of the good news, but how we try to communicate it and how we unite the body to make a difference. Portland shaped us in some pretty significant ways. And has set the stage for some new visions and uh, new ways of embracing the new century in the way in which the gospel is shared. Now, we're talking about the gospel. We're using the word evangelism. Uh, some people listening might be thinking, well, that's like evangelical. Uh, there's a lot of buzz about the, that term and what it means today, and sometimes it's seen as politicized and so on. When you talk about evangelism, when you use that term, Kevin, give us, give us a thumbnail. What does... What is yeah. that for you? Evangelism in yeah, the sense of what's, what's the message? Yeah. And I, yeah, I boil it down and, and uh, you know, we're recording this. Well, you can see the Christmas <laughs> stuff behind me in this Christmas season. And, and so to me, it's, it's back to that simple, eternal, applicable to an absolutely uneducated, illiterate person or to a Harvard-trained physician, whatever, wherever person is, this sense of there is a purpose to life. You are not created. You are created for a purpose. Your life is not an accident. That God, in his love for the world, sent himself in the person of Jesus, that he came to save us. So there's a lot of ways to unpack that. But I think there's this there's this eternal G.K. Chesterton wrote this book that was really influential on C.S. Lewis, one of my heroes called The Eternal Man. And there's so many ways to look at Jesus as the embodiment of what we would love to have any of us be. There was something unique about his person and his teaching. And so really, the, the gospel is all about Jesus Christ. What does it mean to have a relationship with God through Christ. So how we communicate this message to help people find their place in this story of God, really creating the universe, creating people for a relationship with him. And then the brokenness that we all experience because of choices that we make. And in some cases, things that are done to us, but that God's constantly on this quest to restore this broken relationship with his world, with his creation and with us as the highest point of his creation. So it's really a, really a love story in a way. It's the most beautiful story in the world. And it's unfortunately been marred by Jesus followers. And I, I would put myself right in there. None of us live up to the beauty of, uh, of what God intended. And so I think even our best efforts to communicate it never quite get it perfect. And so often, um, I, I think in the U.S. these days, the way that the evangelical community, and I, I still consider myself, you know, proudly an evangelical because I'm willing to have lots of conversations with people that are far from Jesus and not defend the many, many, many mistakes of evangelicals. I'll be the first to, to say like, wow, let me apologize and repent for many of the foolish things that people like me have done, but don't lose the fact um, that, that, it's a, that it's a term that, that at its root is about this beautiful good news. And evangelicals are those, among other followers of Jesus, that love to share this good news. So, hey, forgive us for the many ways we mess up, but there's still a beautiful part. Uh, we're a beautiful part of the body of Christ. And I think in God's providence, we still have um, a role and a place to play 
So um, I'm still one of those that, that doesn't fully shy away from that term because I think, you know, even as we repent for the things we do wrong, it gives us an opportunity to try to explain why Jesus is so good, even though we mess up so badly. You would say, Kevin, that Jesus is the key to everything in the sense that uh, the quest of evangelical um, ambition or evangelism in, a, in the purest form would be to help people understand that Jesus is the key to life, whereas he said, I'm the door, or I'm, I'm the good shepherd, or I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You're owning yes. that, what I describe as orthodox view of Jesus. And, and I'm going to also just project, you tell me if I've got this wrong, that the Palau Association, as your father imagined it, was, was raised up with the idea that the proclamation of the word, that there's a supernatural power when the Bible is opened, when, when the truth is declared, and that, that that can move in people's hearts in ways that nothing else can. And my, my predicate would be that, that will, there'll never be a substitute for the word proclaimed. That's always going to be a key part of the transmission of this news about Jesus. And so the Palau Association grew up with that uh, lens in the way that many people listening today would have understood Billy Graham, who was yes. proclaiming this word. Your dad did too, and did it both in English and in Spanish very powerfully. I mean, some of the greatest, by greatest, maybe that's not the right term, the largest meetings, I don't mean to suggest that size is everything, but some of the most spectacular right. crowds in the world ever gathered in Jesus' name were birthed by the Palau Association. And so uh, it, it has had huge impacts that way. I'm on track so far with you, right? 100%. And dad, you know, I mean, um, we're gonna, I know we're going to transition here yeah. to some of the kind of some of the ways that, that the methodology has shifted to, to, to accom not accommodate the culture, but to take, in, sure. take into account the reality that how we proclaim this good news has to keep adjusting if we want to actually reach people that are far from Jesus uh, with all the barriers that people have. But 100% the place to start is that we believe biblically, historically, in the, in the history of the church, there is always not only a place, there's always an essential nature to declaring. And that doesn't have to be from a pulpit or from a stage, though, as you, though, as you indicated, I mean, dad loved to talk to crowds of people. And it wasn't because he was an egomaniac that wanted to take pictures and brag. It was because he really believed that the best thing he could do with his life is to introduce people to the person of Jesus, that whatever their circumstances, whatever their educational background, economic situation, that knowing Jesus Christ for yourself changed everything. And, and it wasn't just like by faith for him. He could he had seen thousands of people, hundreds of thousands, but he knew thousands of people personally from princesses in the royal family of England to Matt Redman, you know, well-known worship leader to all kinds of presidents, political leaders who he had personally seen come to know Jesus Christ for themselves and seen their lives radically transformed. So nobody could argue with my dad that oh, you're wasting your time. You're just talking to people. You know, you need to get in, in, in real change in people's lives and, in, you know, and, and change institutions and tackle poverty. Dad would say like, 
those are 100% important and they're biblical, but no one could get him off the fact that as important as those things are, the most important thing to my dad. And I, and I would argue for any Jesus follower, we need to be careful that we don't lose the fact that introducing people to Jesus Christ is still essential in our desire for social justice and to see institutions and structures transformed. Because sometimes, again, as the church, we've swung back and forth. It's only about individual people knowing Jesus Christ. Yes, but yes, but that's not quite in balance. Structures need to change. Yeah, they're both important. But boy, for my dad, seeing people transformed by the power of Jesus Christ, there was nothing more important to him. And uh, I had the privilege of seeing many people come to know Jesus Christ and their lives and families transformed. Well, and and that brings us to to the questions of the hour, because that ambition that you just described hasn't changed. The Plow Association is still fixated on this idea that life is always better if you get into a personal, real, legit relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I mean, that's the bottom line. And then the idea of of what once was called a crusade or a mass meeting may still have legs and sometimes in places. But I know, Kevin, that as you have come into leadership of the organization, that you've also had to wrestle with the changing uh, narrative of the world around us. And as you've described, you're in Portland, and I'm a Seattle guy, so uh, I, if, if Portland is that, Seattle's twice that. Uh, you know, th- th- it's not just the same anymore as it was when I first went to university in Portland a long time ago before you were born, probably. Now, that said, nah, uh, you, quite, yeah. well, you, well, we won't go there. Let's just say um, won't go there. Yes, Portland yes, yeah. is today a very influential city, but not always for life-giving reasons in the way in which my world has been yeah. framed. So there you are, still uh, in Portland. Uh, it is a, an, a laboratory of a kind. Uh, it's a great place to live. It has a lot of charm. I don't want to diminish Portland anyway. I, I, I could live there in two minutes from now. If I, had, if I could work my will, I'd be in the Pacific Northwest. But as you're there and you're navigating, how does the Palau Association, how do people like me actually effectively engage the world today? That has led to some new ways of thinking and initiative within the Palau Association. So here we are at that garage door that I'm saying, come on, Kevin, open that garage door for us. You've experimented, I think originally experimented, and now settled on some things. What are you doing? What's different? Well, it started, Jim, you know, pretty simply. It came with the recognition, because Portland is Portland, because it's among the least churched cities in the U.S., and, and, it's, and it's not and kind of ambiguously or kindly unchurched. There, there's plenty of people there that could tell you very clearly and strongly why they think this, especially the evangelical Christian movement, is bad for Portland and bad it's, for the it's world. It's a hostile so think, environment sometimes. You know, we've, yeah, we've, a hostile environment would be, I think, fair to say. So... We, we, our journey began, this new step for us began almost 15 years ago of recognizing that if we we're going to try to communicate the good news to Portland, simply having an outdoor music festival 
um, wasn't going to be enough because we were fearful of simply gathering the already converted and having a, a, a good unifying rally of thousands of believers from different churches. That would be valuable. I mean, I would argue that there's nothing wrong with that. But our desire was to touch the lives of people far from Jesus. And so we recognize that the way I put it is we're not starting on common level ground with the community in Portland. We're starting in this 10 foot hole of misunderstanding that's been dug for many, many decades where we're viewed certain ways because of the spokespeople that have not, not usually been elected by all of us, but just the people that rise to the surface that sometimes might even state things that we would kind of agree with, but they're certainly stating them in ways that are come across as angry and belligerent and unthoughtful and uncritical and unwilling to listen well um, and, and uh, being primarily against things and not necessarily for people and for the city. So we did something pretty simple looking back, at the time, it felt pretty revolutionary. Now, looking back, it seems kind of obvious, but we'd never done it before, so it felt new to us. These pastors we were meeting and praying with to say, how do we better communicate the good news in a united way in Portland? We were kind of working toward a big evangelistic outdoor music festival, and we'd already experimented with things like having an action sports area and a family fun zone, a food court, and corporate sponsors like the Portland Trailblazers and Wells Fargo Bank. But we, we felt that um, we needed to build trust with our city leaders. And so these pastors asked dad and I to go meet with the mayor of Portland. And to our knowledge, this is the first time this has happened. And at the time, the mayor of Portland happened to be the first openly gay mayor of a top 25 city. So that came with its own feelings of like from him, like I'm not sure I can trust these Christians, especially these evangelical Christians. Now they want to meet with me. Why do they want to meet with me? And from our standpoint, we're thinking, will the mayor even take a meeting with us? You know, we're pretty sure that as an LGBTQ plus leader, maybe his experience with people like us hasn't been that positive, but we, we felt a conviction to go see him. And honestly, the first words out of our mouth, we didn't really know him, were, you know, Mr. Mayor, thank you for serving our city. Um, you know, we, as a Christian community, we know that we're known more for what we're against rather than what we're for. We don't love that. We'd love to change that. And so if we could mobilize, and this, I wouldn't recommend this necessarily. I don't know where this number even came from, but somehow out of my mouth came, if we could mobilize 15,000 followers of Jesus from these different churches to love and serve Portland in partnership with the city, we're not sure what that means, but we do know that you're more in touch than, than us with, with the most important needs in the city. Would you help guide us? We're not asking for any money. We're not asking for any influence or favor, but we're frankly embarrassed that we haven't had this conversation before. So we kind of dumped, it didn't take that long, but we, I, I think he sensed our genuine humility and kind of this chagrined feeling of like, how have we not had this conversation before? And also I'd say a very much a legitimate owning of our mistakes and our unintended um, communicating that we're holier than thou, we know better, and uh, we don't really care about the city, and we're basically anti this group and anti that group. So he took that on board, and to his credit, even though he didn't know us that well, 
to his credit, he believed that we were willing to mobilize people. And that led to a, a year-long massive effort, hundreds of well-planned efforts to love and serve the community. Not, I mean, we went way beyond the original goal of 15,000, almost 30,000 folks from hundreds of different churches in the Portland area. I know in some cases it was simply us, meaning the, the body of Christ, shining a light on things that would have happened anyway. But nobody knew who was doing what. It was kind of a, you know, why would anybody be tracking and, and pulling people together who shared interests? Oh, you're interested in foster care. That's great. Or refugee community or partnering with public schools. Wow, there's already 30 churches that were partnering with schools. We didn't even know about that. What if every single public school in the metro area had a church that came alongside and said, humbly, how can we love? How can we serve? So that simple biblical word and deed, you know, the two wings of the bird or the two legs you're walking on, it's like loving your neighbor as yourself, declaring the truth and the beauty and the, and the amazing story of Jesus Christ and the way that a person's life can change by knowing Jesus. Why would those two things be separated? Could we do those two things well together? And it, it was amazing to see the impact on Portland. And again, that's ancient history. That conversation was 15 years ago. The festival that drew 50,000 people over the weekend is ancient history too. But the ongoing unity among hundreds of churches and what we now call Together PDX, that's our airport code, PDX. Together PDX, you can go to that website and see how the churches has, con has continued to partner to love Portland well and the favor and the stature, the credibility of the gospel and of the local church has, has changed pretty remarkably simply by visibly, humbly loving and serving the community without in any way abandoning our clear call to call people to follow Jesus. So <clears throat> what you just uh, described sounds like a phenomenon. I'm hearing you say that there was a traditional mass meeting of a kind, 50,000 people, uh, show up and 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 of course that that's a, a big splash in the pond, uh, but at the same time and what has lived on past the mass meeting is this networking of churches to actually get their hands dirty so to speak in helping to problem solve in the city of Portland in the metro, and that's still together that's still together by together PDX. And, uh, That's right. and the mayor, who was not predisposed to be sympathetic to communities of faith, certainly those branded evangelical, actually played ball. He said, all right, let's, uh, let's get on yep. a team and see what kind of wins we can make. And that guy, I think his name and was he, Sam he, Adams, was the first uh, openly gay Sam Adams, yeah. mayor of Portland. Think uh, of the beer, and there you got Sam. And, and there you got him. But, I mean, he, he took a chance, too even as you took a chance. Yeah. And the outcome is a lot of Portland is better. Now, today when we, you know, people outside of Portland think about this chaotic jumble of, you know, charred cars and broken windows. And, yes, and, and protesters and everywhere. There, that, that, yeah. is, that is a piece of downtown Portland has been, but the larger metro yeah. isn't that much of a chaotic jumble. That's, that's my impression, visiting there often. Well, it's true. And, it's and the true. churches are working it's, still. You know, that's right. hundred percent churches. I mean, we've now gone from what began as a, and I'll be the first to say, we're not a community development organization. I didn't know the first thing about asset-based community development, all these things. 
we were are an evangelistic organization proudly, but we made every mistake that a group of well-meaning but uneducated people could make in terms of now, now we definitely didn't have a triumphalistic attitude. I will say that there was never a sense of like, just get out of our way and we're going to transform Portland. No, there was a genuine humility, but I would say, you know, we've learned a lot about the right, simple, but slow and steady ways to love and serve. But we, we, we began with just trying to demonstrate the love of Jesus. But what began with like simple makeovers of, uh, of some public schools, and in particular, Sam had mentioned, along with the, the superintendent at the time, Carol Smith, who was also a really prominent LGBTQ community member, um, the school superintendent, they both mentioned Roosevelt High School because it had been built for 2,200 students. There were 400 left. It was on a short list of schools to be closed because nobody wants to have their kid at Roosevelt. There was no football team because the grandstands had been condemned. So the long story short was into that situation comes the church, well-meaning, a little naive, not thinking sustainable long-term, came and did a big makeover. But again, by God's spirit, as people saw the need, they began to fall in love with that school and volunteers kept showing up and showing up and showing up. And six months later, the, the superintendent, uh, sorry, the principal of that school goes to uh, one of the outreach pastors of a church that was super involved and says, you're here all the time. Why don't you just office here? And so for years, this one particular church, South Lake, had staff embedded in the school. Uh, they began mentoring every kid in the freshman class. They got Nike involved because of some execs from Nike that were in their church. They rebuilt the football field and the track and the grandstands. And today, Roosevelt has received a $22 million makeover. There's a thousand students at Roosevelt. I mean, it's been a massive transformation, not only because of the church, but our superintendent would say the church was, was who believed in this community, came in, not initially thinking sustainably, but just by the spirit, kept sustaining their engagement. And that is what led our superintendent to say, we've got to work together to find a partner for every school in Portland public schools. And now about 70% of the schools, not just in Portland public schools, but in all the different surrounding school districts have a church partner. And um, people would say, well, what about, you know, proselytizing or, you know, separation church and state. And when, when I first got that question from the superintendent, I kind of laughed and said, if that's your concern, you don't know our people very well because we couldn't pay most of them to open their mouth and talk about Jesus. They are petrified. They've been very daunted by the cultural pressure in Portland. So like that should not be your concern, but here's my card. And if anyone kind of breaks the rules, well, the reality of it is in a place like Portland, and I, in fact, I said this to the superintendent, as pastors and leaders, we desperately want our people to be more confident in who they are and more able to articulate appropriately in the right time and place why they do what they do. And, you know, we all want to live in a community where people feel able and comfortable to share what motivates them and to share the important things of their life. But we understand that, mm -hmm. you know, inviting people to church and sharing the message of Jesus during school, like we understand that's not appropriate, but hey, this is actually something that's important to us. It's our motivation. And I found the more open and honest I was about who we are and our love for Jesus. And hey, we're going to do this festival and you're invited to come. But at the same time, this is no strings attached. Our service 
being wildly enthusiastic about loving and serving people with no strings attached and equally wildly enthusiastic about sharing the good news of Jesus, we received no pushback. I think because we were very upfront and, and uh, authentic to who we were. Um, I think if we would have tried too hard and been cagey, sure. you know, well, we just want to love people. And then, and then, and then they, then it's like, what, wait a minute. You, I know you even, yeah. I think there would have been way more suspicion. The fact that we owned like, yeah, guilty as charged. We love Jesus. We can't help talking about him. A lot of our people are intimidated and, you know, maybe some of us, sometimes we don't do it well, but um, it never was about, we have the right. You can't stop us. No, it was like, wait, we love this. This message has changed our lives. We love to tell people about Jesus. Everybody understood that caused us no problems. And now 15 years later, I feel Portland's not perfect. People see the things on TV that show our imperfections, but it's beautiful to see a small, relatively speaking, Christian community loving each other well, attempting to love the city and not abandoning a, a historically orthodox understanding of who Jesus is and uh, boldly trying to share that message. I have a good friend, Kevin, who uh, felt called implausibly uh, out of her pew at church to visit a strip club uh, because she just had a story in her heart that the Lord wanted her to get involved in helping uh, bring Jesus to that place and so on. But what what brought it to mind as you were talking is she describes how she and she got a group of other gals who baked cookies and they would they would take baskets of cookies every Wednesday night to the strip club and give it to the bouncer at the door and give some cookies to this and that. And you know the church ladies sitting in the strip club that was a whole nother you know picture. But in the end, after some weeks of this, one of the dancers said just out loud, what are you guys doing here? Why are you doing this? Because all of us expect there's some quid pro quo. That's life in this upside down yeah. world. If, if, if you do something for me, you're expecting something back from me. And my friend simply responded by saying, well, we're actually your neighbors because the strip club was nearby the church. We're, we're just your neighbors and we just want to come in and love you. And the dancer who had had such a, a hard edge all of a sudden softened and said, nobody comes here to love me. But mm -hmm. by showing up week by week, they proved their love, which then, to your point, opened the door. Yes. Why do you love me? What in the world would yes. bring you here? And then that leads to an uh, open door to share, just as you described, what's What's making us tick and why are we who we are? And everybody has a story, don't they, about who they are and why yes. they are. We don't think it through sometimes. But if you're walking with Jesus, you should be able to share that. And that's what you're describing. It's so inspiring. A Roosevelt High School, I will not forget that. And as you as you described the story, and now 15 years on, the Palau Association is doing that in Portland. But it's not just about Portland anymore, is it? Yeah, if, if, and if people are interested, they can, in, in this idea, they can go to citygospelmovements.org, which is a website we developed as we realized that what we discovered, we thought on our own. I mean, of course, you pick up ideas from different places and you don't remember where you picked them up. So there's nothing new under the sun. But we realized um, 
that, that, that there were other city stories that were that mirrored our story in some ways, where I think because of the cultural moment we're in, many sincere Jesus followers have this sense like, how do we communicate our genuine love for our city at a time when the media tends to portray us as frankly, being the most hateful people around. That was our mayor's attitude. You guys are the worst people in town. Why would I want to, I mean, as we became friends, he was more honest about what he really thought. And, um, you know, it was not a pretty picture. To his credit, he gave us a little, enough of the benefit of the doubt to try it. But we discovered that in, in Chicago and New York City and the San Francisco Bay Area and Houston and other places, Groups of churches were finding each other with that same heart cry. How do we better express the love of Jesus in tangible ways to, to rebuild and re-earn a bit of trust for the sake of the city? In other words, the, the theme verse for us, and, and we found out many other cities found this same passage, Jeremiah 29, 7, seek the shalom of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. For if it prospers, you too will prosper. In that context of God's people of 700 years before the birth of Christ being carried physically into captivity in Babylon. So here's God's people physically in a strange land against their will. And many people in Portland, many believers in Portland kind of feel like they're in exile too. Mm -hmm. But God's message to Jeremiah isn't the two things we tend to do. Circle the wagons and protect ourselves and just wait for better days to come. Or no one can take this. This is our country. We're going to fight and take it back. And, you know, antagonism that the message Jesus gave back then, and we feel it's equally applicable today, is actively seek the peace and prosperity of this city to which I've taken you into exile. Don't view that you're here by accident or that you're here against your will. Choose to believe that God has you there for a reason, no matter how discordant the culture feels to you. It doesn't mean that we accommodate and that we look exactly the same. They maintain their unique identity. We maintain our stature as followers of Jesus Christ. I say proudly and in, in, I hope in the right way. And yet we're actively to seek the shalom of the city. So that we found so many cities that were kind of on this same path and journey. How, what does it look like? for a group of churches together to seek the shalom of the city? What sorts of areas of brokenness can we lean into? How do we discover these places? They're usually not hard to find. Every city, it's, educate, it's public education, it's foster care, it's the refugee community, it's the homeless community. And so we found so many similarities. All we did was say, hey, what if we tried to convene digitally and in person, occasionally, the leaders of these different sort of movements just to learn from each other. No one's in charge of anyone else. So that city gospel movements website maps out hundreds. There's more than 400 examples in the U S that we know of, of places where in big cities and small towns and maybe suburbs of bigger cities, the church is saying we want to be united in a holistic kind of a word and deed way sustainably. That's how I would define a city gospel movement, a united movement of the churches that's trying to share the good news in word and deed and, and not have it be about one project or one strategy, but a long-term approach. There's hundreds of examples, and we enthusiastically have kind of thrown our lot in to say, how could we help be a cheerleader for uh, this idea 
of the church uniting in this way. We think it's biblical, fully biblical, and practically speaking, it, it, it helps encourage believers to feel like we're not so alone. We feel like maybe the tide is against us culturally to find each other and feel we're not alone and encourage each other. And then also just find these simple creative ways to seek the shalom of the city. The Palau Association, based in Portland, kind of broke the ice with the mayor of Portland in your description of 15 years on ago. Uh, and, and, and the Palau Association is, is, could be an umbrella, let's say, in Portland, because it has stature within the Christian community. It would be recognized and respected, trusted. You develop trust with the unbelieving world around you, and one thing falls into place after another. But not every city has a Palau Association. And you're describing all these cities around the land where churches have come together. And I'm struck by your emphasis on unity, that it it can't just be the work of a of a single church or maybe even a mega church that might have some big prominent footprint. Uh, it, it really has to bring the body of Christ together to be effective. Am I reading that right? That your premise would be, that's, that's we need a whole intention. movement, not just a church. Yeah, that's, that's, I mean, again, that's part of our, I mean, it's part of our DNA because we came out of the Billy Graham crusade mode. That was one of the big strengths of Billy Graham. If if listeners still know who that is, but that was the hallmark of it. It's like, wow, maybe it's been 10 years, but we're going to have an opportunity an excuse to do something visibly together that almost forces us Presbyterian and Episcopalian and and uh, Assemblies of God and non-denominational megachurch to say we share so much in common. Let's come together to proclaim the good news. So that was so much in our DNA that, that we just took it for granted, like the body is better when it's together. But the model, the weakness of the model was that there was no built-in sustainability. It was a ramp up and work together for a season to put on a big event in a stadium, or in our case, we shifted to an outdoor music festival. And then when it was over, it was like falling off a cliff. It's like, I have no idea how you might actively sustain unity because you're tired after putting on a big event. The last thing people said, it's like, great, thank you. That was awesome. Now I get to go back and do our bread and butter work of caring for the people in my flock and maybe some new believers. And so what we found was that this big vision of seeking the welfare of the city was a big enough vision. And it allowed many smaller things that churches would maybe already be doing to count. So that's an important part of when we talk about these city gospel movements. The implication, when I explain it quickly, is it's this big top heavy structure and you have to form and maintain tons of committees and meet every month and raise a big, huge budget and, That's honestly not the case. I think the mentality is, here's the way I think of it. When I think of a city gospel movement, I think of the fact that we're not creating something. We're acknowledging what the Spirit is already doing in the city. I say this, the gospel movement began on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came and created the church by the indwelling, by the filling of the Holy Spirit of all Jesus followers and so basically, it's like there is a gospel movement in your city. It's called. It's made up of every single Jesus follower and every single church that that's hasn't abandoned, you know, everything about historic orthodoxy or whatever. But but in a sense, it's so. So the work of the movement is more being a you know sleuthing out and discovering the beautiful things already happening. So I boil this work down to two key words: celebrate and accelerate. So the one part of the never-ending journey is. 
wow, what if there was a group of people that were just looking to celebrate all the beautiful, good things that by the spirit, the church is doing. And that's mostly individual churches doing all these amazing things. So when you have a group of people that are saying, let's celebrate and count, so to speak, all the beautiful things happening, then it's kind of, it, it celebrates and helps everybody. It's not like, you're no, no one's doing anything and we're going to tell everybody what to do. That's what people fear. Are you kidding me? We, we've already been partnering with our elementary school for the last 10 years, or we've, we've already been serving. So they think, yes, isn't that beautiful? What if we, over time, kind of discovered our individual passions, but then kind of got people together around their shared interests? What if those that were already serving public schools kind of found each other or with the help of a group like said, hey, all of you that, that have a passion for serving our schools, let's, let's get together and, and share some ideas and stories and best practices. And I'll bet you that will help. Well, before you know it, then you start tracking, well, I wonder which schools already have a partner and which don't, because there's no sense everybody doubling up on schools if these ones over here don't have any. But, so it's a simple celebrating what the spirit is doing. Then it doesn't feel like a self-appointed group are going to try to dictate a plan to other people. It's like, we're all part of this beautiful movement. Let's try to celebrate it. Then the accelerating part comes as you're constantly looking at what God's already doing. Then you can say over time, you know what it feels like in this season, foster care or, you know, the refugee community needs help. What if we kind of leaned in and accelerated and, and help those already doing it, do it better and then help maybe churches that haven't quite discovered how to engage, find some pathways to engage. So it's not quite as top down as it might seem. It's really a beautiful experience when people, when the light bulb goes on and people see it not as I'm trying to make a movement happen, but I'm shining a light on the movement of the gospel in our city. There's something beautiful about that. So the unity is around what we already believe in and our already committed love to the city. But then by shining a light and telling these stories over time, you can have people feel like, oh, wow, our little new church plant of five couples, we're part of a big, beautiful story. And maybe over time it becomes called something and maybe there's a website and maybe over time there, you can call it something. But even before you're at that point, it helps remind people of the biblical nature of what we're all doing. We are part of the greatest movement in history. I don't say that triumphalistically, but it's just simply a fact. No, no group has done more to make the world a better place than the church of Jesus Christ without denying the huge harm done by us in our sinfulness, in our pride, in our, you can, you can, we could all lift off, lift off. Anyway, sorry, I get, I get, to waxing eloquent on this stuff, because as you can tell, I'm passionate about it. Well, it, first of all, several things jumped to my mind as you were sharing just then. One is, if I lived in Tulsa or um, Indianapolis, that's close to me, uh, one of my first steps, if I wanted to get on this train, would just go on the website of City Gospel uh, and, and, and just see if, if there's something already uh, formed in, exactly. in my place. You, may, and, you might be surprised that there might be something going that you didn't realize. It already exists. But if if my town doesn't show up there, what would you say that I should do? If I'm just, I'm a guy who works at Starbucks, let's say, and I go to church and I love Jesus and I want to make a difference. 
What yeah. would I do if the, I can't find the Gospel City movement in my town? Yeah. I mean, I, I would simply say that, um, you know, every individual Jesus follower finding their way to reflect the love of Jesus in the Starbucks that they work, et cetera. I mean, I think, you know, the movement, again, if you could see yourself part of the movement, even if it's not on the website, there could still be that sense of conviction, like I am part of a movement. Maybe there's something I can do at my local church. Because I would, so I would always say, you know, if you are a pastor, you have a tremendous opportunity or on staff at a church to say, what are the things that we're doing to impact the community? What more could we do? And then what are there? Are there even a handful of churches geographically near me where I could put a little bit of energy into finding out what they're doing and what makes them tick. So, I mean, I, I would say it doesn't have to start with, I've got to have this massive city impact and I've got to get everybody together, start small and, and, and maybe discover a pastor's prayer group in your neighborhood, you know, look around God by his spirit has put on the heart of some people in your community, a desire for unity. There is some pastor. I promise you, there's some pastor, he might be a little discouraged. He might feel like that the movements have seen better days, but there's probably some group of pastors and leaders that have a heart for unity that are struggling along and trying to do things. So come alongside them and, and, and just express your newfound desire for unity and start small. So don't despise the day of small things and find even simple ways to unite around a shared interest. So it might just be that you have a heart for helping in your public school or for kids in foster care, dig around and, and start being the person that asks questions and starts looking for the best examples of uh, Jesus followers doing good things. Well, with that in mind, um, you've, you've also emphasized two other things that seem to me to be uh, really important. One is humility. Uh, you've referenced humility several times in the way in which you have imagined and experienced and approached. And and I'm I'm processing the term. I think we all understand the word humble and and so on. How do you see that as an as an important, I mean, very intentional framing for any approach we make to the world around us? Yes. Uh, what's the danger zone for people who think, I found Jesus, and he is the Lord of lords and King of kings, the answer to all questions. Where does humility, what, what's the challenge? I think, I think the challenge is, um, most, most individual believers I know, I think genuinely are humble people. I think that the, the impression we've given collectively, because again, a lot of times our spokespeople are those that if you get in the media, it's because you're you're being aggressive and strident and you're kind of clawing your way up the food chain and you're you're sort of you got you got your sound bites. And so it gives the impression that everyone that loves and follows Jesus and is convinced of who he is, that it has a conviction of and a desire to have everybody follow Jesus for everybody's good. The impression can be that that comes with a real aggressiveness and an inability to listen and a sense of like, I'm smarter than you. Like, I can't believe you're so idiotic that you don't see the reality of this. And I think, again, that gives this impression, the impression of a lack of humility. I think humility is an, is an incredibly Christ-like attribute. And I think it breaks down 
negative stereotypes and opens doors of conversation more than any other thing. We didn't go in there consciously trying to be humble. We felt <laughs> humble because we recognize how have we never had this conversation with our mayor? How have we allowed ourselves to be viewed this way and never done anything tangible to try to demonstrate the love of Jesus? So we went in there genuinely kind of embarrassed. And um, so I don't think humility needs to be, mean, mean shame or that we're ashamed of who we are. That shouldn't be the case at all. I think a true humility can come with an absolute rock solid confidence in the gospel and a, and a security. I think, I think true humility comes with the security of our identity. We know that despite all of our sin and failure, we are beloved sons and daughters and our activity comes out of our identity, not trying to earn it. And I think when people see that kind of humility, there's a, there's a quiet confidence underneath it. Mm -hmm. But I think when they see that humility, I want to hear your story. I'm so sorry you've been hurt by the church. Wow. I Tell me more about that rather than like, well, that's not fair. Many people have been. I'm so sorry that that happened to you. That never should have happened that you suffered abuse, physical or sexual or emotional or spiritual abuse by people within the church or your family or of origin or whatever the situation is. When people find Jesus followers acting like Jesus clearly did, interested in people, asking questions, more interested in listening than in talking, the doors do open for spiritual conversations. I've certainly seen that in Portland. And it doesn't need to come with a pretending that we're in agreement or, or I can't ever imply that I'm calling people to follow Jesus or that there isn't a cost to follow Jesus or that our church takes stands, if you want to call it that, that are against the cultural norm. I go to a church that wouldn't feel able to perform a gay or lesbian wedding, for example. Well, that automatically could make some people say, you are a homophobe. And, and to, to listen and take that and say, I understand why you would feel that way. I'm sorry for the pain you've experienced from people that call themselves followers of Jesus. No one should be treated that way. And then you just have to earn the right to say, Here's what I believe scripture teaches if you ever get to that point. So again, it doesn't mean that we abandon scriptural truth as we understand it, but I think it can come with a humility to say, hey, I can guarantee you I don't understand scripture perfectly or fully. I'll admit that right off the bat, but I do feel a conviction to live under the authority of scripture as I understand it. And that sometimes means we're not on the same page on some different social issues, and those aren't unimportant but it doesn't mean we can't be friends and that I can't um, listen to you and hope that you'll listen to me as well. Well, you're describing a kind of humble confidence. Uh, you, we can be secure in who we are, but man, hubris yes. is always a barrier and humility People is always an open door. Pick it up. Uh, people pick that up so quickly. I get that when I'm talking to people and I think they're full of uh, you know they, they imagine that they have every answer nailed down and want to impose it on me that doesn't necessarily make me feel like I want to share with them at a deep level the other concept yes. that you you keep I think have implied is collaboration that problem solving mm -hmm. uh, the prosperity of the city the the tackling of difficult issues that around, are around all of us in this broken world. 
that that requires, or actually maybe we have an opportunity to collaborate with people who may not think like us or have embraced our faith. You have clearly uh, crossed the river, so to speak, to work collaboratively with other people towards some shared common good. But as you know, Kevin, there'll be people who might say, but I don't want to be compromised. We've already kind of talked about this. Just because you're respecting someone else doesn't mean that you're compromising your own point of view. But still, yes. there's there's a little reluctance. What if what if there's a win and that shines some uh, daylight on something a group that I don't agree with? What would you say to that? Yeah, I would I would say that the Lord knows our hearts, and I think if our if if we're not intentionally or unconsciously even abandoning the gospel and a desire to call people to follow Jesus. Because again, that can happen. I mean, there, there's a reason why my dad, for example, who went to be with the Lord uh, this last March, such an amazing dad and leader of the organization. But, you know, he had some concerns for quite a few years, not because um, of his, you know, he was a very winsome relational person, but he had a little bit of a concern of mission drift. You know, well, you know, are, if we're, are we going to put so much energy into um, school partnerships and foster care and refugee care that before you know it, we're doing good things, maybe even without abandoning our, our you know, hey, we're doing this in the name of Jesus. But is that going to take us away from our primary calling as an evangelistic organization of proclaiming the good news in various ways? So we would wrestle back and forth. But part of it, I think, was dad sensed in me, I think his, his evangelist spidey senses were tingling. And I was very defensive and I would argue him on it and he would drop it. But frankly, um, probably 10 years into this movement, I had a Holy Spirit, a literal kind of Holy Spirit moment where God enabled me to see the truth about my own heart, which was that in subtle ways over time, my personal passion and conviction for the importance of calling people to follow Christ and sharing the good news had been blunted and waned. And I'm not blaming the fact that we, that we were loving and serving the community. Those things are not opposed. But in my case, dad saw a cooling of the fire and I had to have a refreshing from the Holy spirit of my conviction of the beauty and the joy of the gospel and to lose my fear, I would say for so many Jesus followers, if we're honest, we are afraid uh, to share the good news because of what people will think of us. And that's that's not new. It's we, throughout church history. You have a percentage of people that seem undaunted by anything. And probably most of us struggle in that area. So uh, so for me, yeah, I needed that that push. Um, but all that to say, sorry, that, that was kind of a big segue, but back to the question that you asked, I think that if we don't lose our joy about the gospel, then we should be unintimidated and unashamed and unapologetic about partnering with anybody. I, I glory in partnering with people who disagree with me on everything imaginable, because I would, I would argue to anyone who's complained from within the body of Christ, which has happened very seldom, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, I would just say I am doing this um, unapologetically to love my neighbor as myself and to build bridges for the gospel. 
And I think when, when, when people see that genuineness, those that might say uh, it's compromised will sense that it's not. And, and again, I expected a lot more pushback than we got. I think people sensed people that know the Palau Association thought, well, Hmm. I, 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 I there's something about this makes me feel a little awkward and uncomfortable, but I believe that they're doing it because they're trying to advance the kingdom and advance opportunities to share the gospel. And that is indeed what's happened. So yes, mission drift is real. It's, it is very possible. We've probably all seen individuals or even churches that have maybe drifted in their theological convictions or more importantly, their, their rootedness in scripture and in the historic understanding of the church, you know, to say that I, I need to be simple and um, humble enough to say, maybe there's a reason why the broad church throughout many different cultures and times has stuck with certain understandings of scripture. Maybe I need to be humble enough to say my new idea. I might be the one that's off base. So I think it's important to be rooted in scripture. So I, I understand people that would, that would be concerned, but I think if we're rooted in scripture and are doing it out of a love for Jesus without losing an evangelistic heart, then I say we should be able to partner with anybody for the common good. Um, I mean, there'd obviously be things that mm-hmm. just, you know, that we wouldn't share as a value. Common but, good issues. Yeah. Exactly. Well, and I, I suppose in, in ordinary church life, there are a lot of things, we don't think of it this way, but there are a lot of things that could cause mission drift. You know, the singing Christmas tree could be a mission drift towards entertainment, uh, differentiated from rescuing the public school. I mean, everything has the capacity to become the main thing when Jesus should always be the main thing. But whether it be the singing Christmas tree or the rescue of a public school, if Jesus is the main thing, well, then it probably has merit. As you uh, look around the world and and here you are, you know, just, it's obvious, Kevin, you're, you're living and breathing the oxygen of uh, this kingdom work. As you look around past the Palau Association, past the Gospel City movements, how do you look forward in the future? What do you think? Are you optimistic? Are you discouraged? How would you describe your your worldview? I mean, I, I mean, there's. It's certainly true that there's times when I get discouraged by um, the, the the number of people who've grown up in our churches and who, as they encounter alternate worldviews and as they look at the world. Rather than them drawing closer to Jesus, they at least in seasons drift away and and find enough cognitive dissonance between what they thought the church was. There's there's no doubt at times that discourages me and at times maybe even fills me with some anxiety about, oh, no, you know, are we here at a time where, where we're seeing the, you know, the permanent tide going out on the body of Christ, or are we going to become fully like parts of Western Europe where churches are, you know, museums in a way and, and the vibrant Jesus followers are a very, very small percentage. But when I feel that way, and I'll admit that I do at times, all I need to do is think of the history of the church and think of the reality, the living reality of the Holy Spirit empowering his people. And, and also have more of a global vision to recognize that 
modern day United States is simply one tiny, tiny part of the global universal historical church. And that uh, the church has been through far worse even today as far as persecution. So again, it's just taking that deep breath and saying, I'm not responsible for the church. I am responsible to live as a Jesus follower under the power of the Holy Spirit, wherever that leads. But I can't be responsible for the global church. And um, Jesus, it is his church. He's a good leader of the church. And and then that, that gives me encouragement. And of course, I'm encouraged by the tremendous growth of the church in many parts of the world. In the two-thirds world, in the global south, the church is growing in tremendous ways, not only numerically, but in depth. When I look at the church in Latin America that we know very well, the church in Africa, many parts of Asia, the church is growing. And the majority of people that would you could characterize as evangelical, the vast majority are not white. And that, that to me is a strength of this movement. And again, I don't I happen to be part of one stream of the church. I'm not trying to make that the main thing, but it is encouraging to me that we are one smaller part of a global church that continues to make an impact. And in the, and the ups and downs of life, our confidence is not in ourselves or our local congregations, but in the spirit that empowers the church. And so that's what gives me confidence. And, and we are seeing many people encounter Jesus all around the world. And even in the U S even in Portland, we formed an evangelism team as part of Together PDX because we realized we were mostly focusing on unity and serving the community. So 10 years into the movement, we said, uh-oh, we are drifting a little bit in our evangelistic zeal and impact. So we formed a team with Alpha and Crew and InterVarsity and FCA and Young Life and some churches that were super evangelistic. We interviewed 50 different churches in Portland on how are you seeing evangelism play out and where are you seeing fruits? And we came up with nine key findings. And if, by the way, I can get you a link, Jim, and if anyone wants to see what, is, what were the nine key findings about evangelism in Portland and how is evangelism still, how are we still seeing people come to faith in Jesus? The gospel still has power to change lives. And there are churches that are growing in various ways. And the church of Jesus Christ can't be stopped by anything because of the power of the Holy Spirit. So I am way more bullish than I am discouraged. And um, I appreciate people like you that, that are calling out and helping people see the beauty of the gospel, even in these challenging days. I think we're all familiar with, or certainly you and I would be, the ancient prophecy from Isaiah that says, for unto us a child is born, a son is given, and so on. And and he shall be called the mighty God, the eternal father, and the prince of peace, and the wonderful counselor, and so on. The part of that passage that we don't often carry on to our Christmas cards says that, and of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end, which has always been a comfort to me, because no matter what I might see on my front door, if I saw what God sees, the increase of the Lord's government, his peace, is constantly expanding. I think that will be true until uh, the end of the age. You know, if someone was listening to us today, Kevin, and they said, wow, this was a lot of, uh, you know, some inspiring talk about helping work together to make my town better, uh, but a lot of mumbo jumbo about that whole Jesus trip. I'm not sure there even is a God. Come on. uh, Aren't we past that? What would you say to them? 
You know, I, I would say that that my, my conviction is that God has planted eternity in everyone's heart, that there is something, there's a reason why the predictions of the end of faith, you know, predicted over and over again, and at least in our, in our modern post-Enlightenment era, there's always a sense of like, once enough people are educated and have a more scientific worldview, it'll become apparent that there's nothing to faith. There's nothing to it. And yet the reality is that the opposite is true. That uh, that even in places that are highly educated, there's something, and I would we, I would say that it's the reality that there is something more, and that for most people, there's an internal longing that says, "I want my life to matter. I want my life to not just simply be an accident." I believe that somehow we act as though we believe that our lives matter. Even people that are atheists, it's really interesting, or would or would say. I lean atheist or agnostic. We don't act as though our lives are 100% random and meaningless. There's something in us that I would say is there by God's design that makes us believe that there is beauty and purpose and, and almost a magical quality in the universe that we get glimpses of. C.S. Lewis you know, talked about being surprised by joy, that even in his atheist days, he was drawn in, in almost a mystical way toward beauty and certain types of art. And he had this description of northernness and Norse mythology that he looks back and said, there was something of God in me that called me towards something greater. And so like, I feel like I don't even have to argue with most people about that. It's like, I don't know what you're going to call that, but to me, Oh, you know, and people can, you know, some may just describe it as there's, you know, they would try to find an evolutionary rationale for it. It's like, fine, if you want to go there. I choose to believe, and I believe that there's good reason to believe. You cannot prove God's existence scientifically. You cannot prove who Jesus is as far as his divinity um, scientifically. But I do believe that there is compelling evidence, if a person's open-minded, to the existence of a creator that gives purpose and meaning to life. And then to the incredible beauty and the compelling nature of Jesus himself. And, and some people come to come to Jesus through creation and then that way. And other people come more through, there's something about this person. How could there be, have been a person who just so embodied every good virtue? Mm -hmm. And 2,000 years later, you don't read about if, if I would challenge anyone that's listening that from that mindset, if you haven't read the source material of the Gospels of Jesus, don't necessarily start at the beginning of the book. If you pick up a Bible and read in Genesis, I would say start with the Gospel of John or start with the Gospel of Luke in the New Testament and just try with an open mind to say, what was Jesus like? Why have there been billions of people that claim that this guy is still alive and that his teaching has revolutionized? I mean, you can't argue with the fact that the teachings of Jesus have revolutionized the world and made the world a radically better place. He was so ahead of his time in his view of women and his view of justice. He was the most radical activist ever. So even for people today that have abandoned the church, I would say you don't have to abandon Jesus himself. Go back and discover if you've drifted away 
because of the way that Jesus followers have behaved. Don't lose, don't let those people, don't let us stand in the way of your own re-encounter with Jesus Christ, the beauty of what he taught. You'll see that, that the best prophets today and social justice warriors, at best, they're just kind of grabbing a little bit of Jesus's teaching and sprinkling it around today. And people are going, oh, that's nothing new. And trust me, anyone that's talking about peace and love and justice in the world, go read what Jesus said about it and you'll see where they got it. So anyway, I get impassioned about it because I just long for people who think that they need to abandon Jesus Christ because of what they've seen, the hypocrisy and the maybe being overly tied to a particular political party or an anti-scientific worldview. None of those things need to be true for you. And you can have a relationship and encounter with Jesus Christ. And I, and I, and I believe if you do that, you will find yourself in a Christian community that you won't agree with 100%. And in fact, you'll find yourself in a community that you'll say, somehow, I have a love for these people, even though, boy, they make me mad. My blood boils when I see how they're acting politically. But you know what? There's something about we share this identity as humble followers of Jesus Christ. So anyway, I would say there's something in you already, if you're honest, that is calling you. Listen to that still small voice inside of you that's calling you toward beautiful things and true and just things. I would say that's God. And then take a fresh look at what Jesus actually said, what his followers who were with him or or those who were talking to those who had encountered Jesus, what did they say about him? Don't filter it through your cousin or your crazy uncle. Go to the source and just see if in this Christmas season you could discover why we really do believe that knowing Jesus is the best way to live and, and it's a beautiful thing. I love the way, Kevin, you've often referenced in this conversation the your conviction, which I share, that God is working even when we can't see it. In other words, you can't just start with like, I've got to solve this, or I've got to fix this, or it's on me. No, I just need to find how to fit into where he's working. And there's so much going on, and for people, as you've just described, uh, or as I posited the question to you, someone who may be completely hardened, it would seem, to any even acknowledgement there is a God or supernatural, God is already working there. And uh, we have to yeah. believe that and, and walk there. All right, on a totally different tack, your dad was born and, and spent his growing up in Buenos Aires, or at least in the metro there, is that right? And yeah. then you mentioned that, that after he you know, got the calling to be an evangelist, that your family lived for eight years in Latin America— as he as he kind of got his footing with all that, I'm just asking you, do you go to Buenos Aires? Is, you, is that a place where your family has roots and you feel like, yeah, I, I can do that? Very much so. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful city. It's, it's an incredibly cosmopolitan, very European-like city. If people go there for the first time and they haven't already previewed it a lot, they, they're thinking like, oh my gosh, this feels like if they've been to to Paris, for example, there, it, it, it has, it's a European city because Argentines are vast majority European and it's a beautiful people. I mean, in every way, the culture is amazing. And we're actually preparing to do a year from now, 11 months from now, we're preparing COVID willing 
um, to do one of these big festivals that we do, uniting and mobilizing a thousand churches in Buenos Aires, even with dad gone, my brother Andrew and his wife, Wendy, the church in Buenos Aires has said, please let's spend more than 10 years. Let's unite. Let's share the good news. Let's find ways to love and serve our very damaged, struggling community because of COVID. Um, how can we visibly be the body of Christ and love and serve Buenos Aires? So we're, we're preparing to go back there, but love Buenos Aires and, and Argentina. Um, it's an amazing place. In our Here at our Portland Timbers, we just lost the MLS Cup at home, which was sad just this last Saturday. But our best players are Argentines and Dad built a great relationship with uh, with those. So they, Dad was really a known and loved Argentine, even for people that aren't necessarily evangelical followers of Jesus. So Argentina is a special place. I'm so glad to hear you uh, give that high five to the city of your family's origin and uh, to know that there are still festivals being organized too and that it's all part of a, a beautiful fabric at the Palau Association of the, the words proclamation by the spoken word and also by the ministry of our hands and hearts uh, in in the weeds. And I've been to Buenos Aires and I'd, I'm a fan, let me just tell you. But among all the yeah. other wonders of it and the broad boulevards and the cafes and just the architecture and the and the vibe of the culture and the unique blend of European and Western uh, mm -hmm. hemispheric uh, mm -hmm. cultures and all of that. Here's what I loved most. The town like sleeps in the morning and stays up late at night. And that dinner reservation doesn't actually get going until eight or nine at night. I'm telling, I thought this is my world because <laughs> <laughs> I'm a night guy and what a terrific place uh, to visit or to call home. Kevin, thanks mm -hmm. for sharing with us. Absolutely. All that to say, we are so proud to know you and to champion what you, you do. And may the Lord bless and prosper your every step and the whole work of the Palau Association uh, in Portland, in Buenos Aires, and around the world. Thank you so much. And uh, I just, someday I'm going to come to Portland and I'm going to find the Palau Association. And... Uh, Dinner Not on hard to find. You can come to right. see your friend Ben and us. And yeah, All right. great people here. Thanks so much, Kevin. God bless. Be encouraged. God bless you too. Thank you. For more information, visit allthattosay.org. Thank you for joining the conversation. Don't forget to like and subscribe.